Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. November is National Family Caregivers Month. According to the Caregiver Action Network, about 29% of the U.S. population will provide care for a chronically ill, disabled, or aged family member or friend during a given year, spending an average of 20 hours per week providing care. It's a demanding job, not just because of the volume of care, but also because of the physical, emotional, and psychological strains that can come with it. That brings us to our guest, Cindy Kraft, who as a home health physical therapist sees the relationship between the family caregiver and the patient up close, sometimes wondering which of them is in greater need of assistance. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, Kraft outlines the ways that a caregiver's best intentions can result in frustration, exhaustion, or even injury, and she provides tips to avoid those pitfalls. Kraft also urges those who aren't caregivers today to prepare themselves, at least mentally, for the almost inevitable day in which they will be. This interview is packed with wonderful advice, but a reminder is always that input from our guest is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. With that, here's our interview with Cindy Kraft. Cindy, one of the unique things about physical therapy is that it rarely ends at the clinic. For relatively fit athletes who are looking to stay at the top of their game to patients who are trying to move forward after a significant surgery, It's likely that the physical therapist is going to recommend exercises or stretches for the patient to do at home. Obviously, depending on the patient and their symptoms, that patient may require assistance from a family member to do those exercises or to continue on after surgery or in that recovery. And in some of the cases, the physical therapist might actually go into the patient's home to do the physical therapy there. We want to talk today about family caregivers, but first let's just talk about home health physical therapy. Give me an overview of the kinds of patients and symptoms that home health physical therapists commonly treat. Well, it's actually more diverse than I think many people realize because we see folks that, as you've already mentioned, may have had surgery or had some sort of procedure in the hospital to folks that are being referred after being in the nursing home or in a rehab unit for a while. And we also have patients that are coming directly from referrals from their physician's office. So it can be a mix of um, problems walking or with issues with balance and falls to you know just trying to navigate in your environment safely. If you think about all the potential obstacles any one of us has in our home, including our beloved pets, there can be a challenge to individuals trying to come home when they're not able to walk and get around the way they used to. And we work with them to try to get their strength back and their balance back, but also to help make good decisions about the environment and be able to navigate that safely. And so in those scenarios, I'm assuming the environment could be addressed potentially in one session, but how often might somebody who's in need of a physical therapist coming to their home see a physical therapist? Could that be multiple times over months and years uh, given for certain patients and then maybe one time for another patient? Well, it really depends on what the individual patient's issues are. Um, It can range from, you know, one or two visits, as you said, to really provide some general feedback and basic instruction, and the patient has, you know, a good understanding and good support and is able to carry on, to 
typically a couple of months of two to three visits a week, and it, it tends to taper down over time. The way the home health benefit works, if the patient has additional needs, we can extend it past that, or if a year or two from now something else comes up that, that they feel physical therapy would be beneficial for, we can get a new order and go back in. There's no lifetime maximum on that, but we have to make sure it's truly you know, requiring our skill to come in and help individuals in their unique situation. A crucial part of the whole physical therapy experience is the patient taking buy-in for their own recovery to continue, say, those exercises or whatever the case may be down the road, beyond the clinic, beyond the initial care episode. That said, you talked about looking at the environment that the patient is in and making recommendations, but how often are physical therapists then in the position of dealing with those family caregivers and letting them know what that person needs to do to care for their loved one to make sure their loved one can do those exercises or not fall into the environmental traps that might be there? Well, I think, you know, having been now working in home health for about 20 years, caregivers can really be a huge positive to this experience in terms of helping the patient carry through on things. And they can be a challenge when they're overwhelmed with with many different things. I think what's interesting about providing physical therapy in the home is that we're dealing with a lot of real-life situations. And you know as well as I do that Even healthy people should exercise on a regular basis, but life can get in the way. There's things we have to do and take care of, and and even well-intentioned, we'll do them later today. No, maybe we'll do them tomorrow. Maybe this weekend I'll do it. And lo and behold, time passes, and we're not doing the activities we know we should be. This is even more of an issue if the individual is not feeling well or has had surgery or has had a recent fall or an injury. And, wow, the idea of getting up and moving around when I don't feel so great it can be hard to get motivated. And having a caregiver who knows how to do that and do that well can really help a program be more successful. But also recognizing that at times physical therapy is one of multiple services the patient may be getting in the home. They may be needing a nurse and occupational therapy and speech-language pathology, a home health aide, a social worker. So now you may have a situation where a caregiver is juggling, you know, the need to follow through on more than just the physical therapy. And how are they going to prioritize that? What do they need to help the patient focus on to keep them from both being overwhelmed and being overwhelmed and, and making mistakes with the medications or things like that is, is one of the main reasons we see individuals go back to the hospital. And we know that they don't want to go back to the hospital. So we want to help them understand that although they're very happy to be home, our role in helping them and their caregiver is to keep them at home safely. We might talk about some technique for those caregivers later, but in general, what makes a good family caregiver? I think it's someone who knows how to balance their desire to help against helping the patient be as independent as possible. Many times we'll see a caregiver who is so happy that this individual is home that they run the risk of overdoing for them. And knowing that ability that maybe when they first get home, from the hospital or from the nursing home, they're probably going to need some extra help as they transition back to their home environment. But knowing when to start to back that down, um, to have them do as much as they possibly can for themselves, even in patients that can do very little, but having them do as much as they can helps to decrease the load on the caregiver, but also helps to decrease what I would call accidental acceleration of decline, that you do so much for the individual that they don't have to get up and get that glass of water. They don't have to get up to to get the door. They're getting up very little. And although that may seem like we're helping them and allowing them to relax, too much relaxation and inactivity could really be detrimental to the patient. 
In past episodes of this show, we've talked to physical therapists who have dealt with families whose children have developmental delays, for example, and they, in essence, are dealing somewhat with the same thing of how do you make sure the child is safe but also encourage them to, to be independent and to learn those skills. The advantage, of course, when you're dealing with children is that essentially you can be the parent and you can sort of say, well, this is the way it is and the child doesn't know any different or they might complain. But when you're dealing with an adult, it's a whole different dynamic. There's obviously all that other psychological and emotional. You've got a person who can talk back, a person who can say, no, I can't, and then a power struggle potentially occurs. So how does the family caregiver prepare for that and negotiate through those kinds of situations? Well, I think part of it is recognizing that as we're getting into that caregiver role for a family member or friend, it is changing more than just that role in terms of helping them with an exercise or reminding them to take their medication. You're absolutely right. In the home setting, what we're seeing is that you know the individual who might be needing help now was the one who was helping everybody else before. It's difficult when we see, especially in certain patients that we serve, especially with the holidays coming up, that they were the ones who made the Thanksgiving meal or did the decorating for the holiday, and now they're not able to. So a well-meaning caregiver offers to do that or offers to help with that, and sometimes it's met with some negativity and frustration. So I think it's it's understanding that. Maybe, you know, i got to recognize I was their daughter before I was their caregiver. I was their neighbor or their spouse before I had this role. And, and that can be a, an altering experience that just needs to be discussed, that, that I'm not trying to take over for you. I'm not saying that, you know, you're incompetent and, I, and this has to be done. But we have to work together to figure out a way that you can do what you want to do safely. So maybe as an example, you're really not in a position to cook Thanksgiving dinner like you used to. But instead of me coming to it with, I'll cook all of it for you, you just sit there and relax, which some of us may say, woohoo, sign me up for one of those. But for some people, that makes them feel bad. It affects their image of themselves and what they're able to do. So can we compromise and say, okay, what part of the meal could they make? Could we break it down to something that would allow them to be participating and be feeling value in this without taking it away from them thinking we're being helpful? So I think it's recognizing that, you know, we're dealing with individuals, especially in their home setting, there can be a lot of, for lack of a better word, almost territorial issues about how they did things and when they did them and what time they did them and how they like to do them. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have varying degrees of that. And being willing to just simply discuss it, talk about some of those strategies is a lot of what we do when we're teaching the patient and caregiver on safety issues and, and how to follow through so that it's not just, you know, you're not well, you sit there and we'll do everything for you. That can really make it a tense dynamic fairly quickly. Those coaching and teamwork skills are a great example. What else when you're talking to somebody who's going to be a family caregiver and you're trying to let them know what they're going to need to do to, to help their loved one, what other kind of advice do you give them at the outset of what they need to be prepared for? I really think a caregiver needs to also remember to care for themselves. It's very easy to, you know, kind of get caught up in the needs of others, and it's very admirable that individuals do that. But, you know, in my tenure in home health, it's very disturbing in a way that at times you enter the home, you know, to provide the physical therapy, and the caregiver looks more exhausted, more frustrated, more drained than the actual patient does. They're just doing everything, trying to do this, and having that balance that says, if I'm going to effectively care for this individual, I also have to care for myself. 
So whether it's taking a few minutes to read or, or go for a walk or, you know, finding that, you know, depending on the needs of the patient, sometimes they can't be left alone. Well, then can we find someone else that possibly could take some of that off of you for a little while? You do need to take a break because, again, once they're in the home setting, it can very quickly feel like I'm doing this caregiving activity 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no end in sight, no weekends, no holidays. And the unfortunate thing is you can burn yourself out really quick that way. And when you become short-tempered, tired, you're not feeling well, you're overwhelmed, then it affects your ability to provide good care to that individual. It can very easily also add to that tension issue because yeah, I'm so tired and, and so frustrated that I'm resentful. And not because I'm, I'm a bad person or I don't care about this individual my, or my family member or friend, but it's hard to stay on that caregiver level all the time without a break. Absolutely. Just to back that up, here are some statistics from the Caregiver Action Network. 72% of family caregivers report not going to the doctor as often they should. 55% reported skipping personal doctor's appointments so that they could provide care to somebody else. Those are just cherry-picking a couple numbers, and as you mentioned, it doesn't include just wearing somebody out, just that emotional and physical exhaustion of, of kind of always being on call. So what is the solution there? I assume that for the caregiver, this happens not consciously. This happens by becoming overwhelmed, and the next thing you know, two weeks have gone by, and you haven't done anything for yourself. So how do you build out that time successfully? Well, I think that's a question that's even bigger than being the caregiver to an ill or injured individual. I mean, think of mothers with small children, extended family commitments, working outside the home. I'm sure there'd be similar statistics that the needs of those other entities also make people miss doctor's appointments or not follow up on things for themselves. I think it's part of our nature to want to be helpful like that. But I think we have to realistically look at it and say, I'm part of this as well, and I have to maintain my health and my sanity if I'm really going to be able to provide care to the people that I care about. And, and I think we're just inclined to almost you know, feel like we have to pour everything out to someone else, but then we end up with nothing left. And so, you know, I wish I had the magic. If you just did this, you know, you'd carve out your own time. For me, it's really making that commitment that I will go for that walk, I will read that book, I will go for that doctor's appointment and say this is what I need to do. And if the family member receiving the care, you know, may have gotten quite accustomed to you doing everything for them and being there all the time, but having a discussion that says, you know, I really want to be able to help you appropriately, to do that, I have to make sure my health is good and that, that these things are also being taken care of. And so how do we best do this? Would you feel better if we had someone come over and sit with you while I was gone for a little bit? And who would that be? And how do we kind of you know do it on a smaller scale first? But really helping people understand that it's okay to say that because it's just staggering to me when you go into these homes and, and the caregiver looks like they're the one who's going to go back to the hospital before the patient because they're just pouring everything out and they feel they have to do this for the person that they love. But they're never going to be able to sustain it without putting some degree of boundary around it, even if it's going to get your hair done you know, that once that month. Getting out and just getting perspective on it will really make a more sustainable and healthy caregiver relationship that can last much longer than if you burn out and you're sick and things just tend to spiral out from there. I realize you're not a, a mind reader. That said, when you see those family members, those caregivers who are burned out, the ones that look like they need the treatment and, and not the, the person theoretically in need, do you think they're even aware that they've gotten to that point, or do you think that just sort of sneaks up on them? And in other words, are there warning signs they should be looking for? 
I think for a lot of folks, it, it does sneak up on them. And it'll sneak up, you know, especially when you start hitting cold and flu season. Now the caregivers are, you know, coughing, sneezing, under the weather, not feeling well. I think that's your body saying, hey, excuse me, uh, we need a break. But I think, you know, it's those warning signs of, you know, am I feeling run down all the time? Do I feel like I'm starting to lose patience with the person I'm trying to take care of? Again, being aware of our own feelings when, you know, okay, I love this person, I want to help them. But, you know, now I've noticed that when they ask me for help, part of my inclination initially is I want to throw something or choke somebody. Yeah, that's a clear warning sign that, you know, you're needing a break from this. And admitting we need help is is sometimes very difficult. And so, you know, having that network, whether it's other family members or friends or it's a caregiver who's come from a different part of the country, to stay with this family member. So now they don't really know what's out there or who their family members, friends, or neighbors really are. And and we, on the home health side, at times pull in medical social work services for that very reason, to kind of talk through some of those issues, to help people understand what's out there. And there is a lot of support services for caregivers and, and things out there that you really don't know about until you need it, but then how do you find out about it before you're all burnt out and ready to to lose your mind in the process? Churches can be helpful with this, community centers, just being aware of our surroundings and saying, okay, you know, what else is out there? I think folks that are not currently caregivers for someone need to kind of be paying attention to those things and have them filed away somewhere, at least where you'd start looking if that situation arises because we know the demographic is aging. We know a lot more people are ending up kind of in that sandwich issue between younger children and and caring for parents and extended family. So I think if you're not in that situation yet, looking at those resources, being aware of that, the ability to search things on the internet and look for those kinds of things proactively, I would strongly recommend because we know that it could be a blink of an eye and and all of a sudden we're now responsible for for another human being's well-being after an incident, an injury, a fall, something like that. And so I think being on the proactive side of it can be very helpful. Everything that we've just talked about there has been really related to kind of knowing your limits emotionally and what you can do and that general exhaustion. But how often do you see also caregivers maybe pushing their limits physically? So, for example, they really shouldn't be the person who's helping their loved one stand up because they're too small and can't do that by themselves, and they really should have somebody else there to help them out. But no one else is around, and they just go ahead and do it anyway. And I have to think that that's creating risks not just for the patient but for them. Is that another common problem? Yes, and I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier in terms of knowing how to properly help another human being when you're helping them physically. Sometimes it truly is, as you mentioned, a size issue. The person trying to be the helper is way smaller or could be more frail or even have more physical problems than the person they're trying to help. But, you know, there are specific techniques on how to safely help someone sit up in bed or get out of bed, how you can stand with someone or alongside someone when they're walking so you're not feeling like you're hanging on or dragging people around. Physical therapy can really be helpful in teaching safer techniques. Um, But sometimes it's the reality of, of, I guess, physics and and body mechanics that, that sometimes it truly comes down to it's not safe to help other individual. I know you want to. And sometimes it's the patient themselves who doesn't want anybody but their daughter to do this, doesn't want anybody but their spouse to do this. And at times you have to get in and mediate and say, I understand that you two have been caring for each other for a very long time to varying degrees over your life together, but now we're in a situation where it's a physical risk 
to have this person do that? Can we work together and find someone else who can come in and do this and work with that individual to teach them the same kind of safety techniques for that? But sometimes I think a caregiver feels trapped by the patient who says, I only want you to do this. I want you to go with me when I take a shower. Well, if it's reached the point where it's unsafe for me to do that, I'd be irresponsible to continue that and risk both of us in the process. And sometimes, again, we can have a healthy conversation about that, but sometimes family dynamics, as you and I both know, have a long history way before this current caregiver situation and the need for physical assistance. So sometimes it is pulling in an external source, like a medical social worker, like a pastor, like someone that they trust to be able to talk this through. Because helping someone physically is a skill people need to learn. And knowing, as we said before, how to back that off over time. Maybe I did need to give you a significant boost to get into the shower when you first came home, but you've been receiving therapy, you've been getting stronger, and I saw you get in there with the occupational therapist, and she basically just put a hand on you. She didn't lift you. So why is it when it's time for me to do it, you expect me to lift you? Because that's what I've always done. So collaboratively working between the caregiver and the therapist about when to taper that off and what parts that individual can now do for themselves and should do for themselves so that they become more independent, more confident, and over time it's decreasing the workload on the caregiver, but in a safe way. Because, again, we see people that just want to help so much that they think they have to lift and boost. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've gone into the home to work with a patient and they're sitting in their favorite recliner chair and I've said, okay, Mr. Smith, let's get up and go for a walk. And he gets up from the chair. Well, okay, there we went. And all of a sudden, there's a caregiver in the room who her eyes are bugging out of her head, smoke's coming out of her ears, and they proceed to tell you that he never gets out of the chair by themselves. They always have to boost him. So then they ask what magic power a physical therapist has that made them get up from the chair like that when every other time she's tried to get him to do it, she has to lift him. Well, maybe he's become dependent and expects it from her. He was not expecting it from me. So now we see he has the ability to do it. How do we reinforce that any time he needs to get up, he needs to get up this way and not expect that individual to come pull him up? I want to go back to something you talked about earlier about preparing and and thinking proactively. You mentioned the aging population. So many people are going to be in family caregiver situations at some point in their life. If someone's looking at that, they see it coming. They see an aging parent, for example, and they think they're likely going to be in that role. What are some other examples of things they should be doing now to think about what situation they may be faced in, maybe in a year, maybe in a decade, but it's coming? Well, I think in terms of seeing people we may need to be the caregiver for and also recognizing that at some point we could very easily find ourselves on the receiving end of care, I think it's interesting to look at the physical environment of the home. You know, when folks do remodeling activities, when they move into a new living situation, purchase a home, get a different apartment, buy a condo, I think we all need to collectively start paying more attention to any potential physical barriers presented by that environment. So it may be fine that I'm young, I'm healthy, and I'm going to buy this townhouse because I really like it, and the only bathroom in it is up a flight of stairs. Okay, well, that might be fine now, and I don't mind running up and down those stairs, but if I had to bring someone into my home to care for them, how would we manage that? If I love this area so much that I intend to stay here indefinitely, how would I manage that? And it's not always about becoming progressively older, it could be I break my leg 
And now I've got to figure out how to get up all those stairs and that tub that I thought was just so fabulously awesome over there. I realized that it doesn't even fit a seat in it if I had to. So we're seeing, you know, some emerging markets as well of therapists working with contractors about making those kinds of decisions, whether it's doorway width or floor surfaces or bathroom location, getting proactively ahead of the accessibility. Because many homes we go into to provide home health, you go in there and you say, okay, I know that's got a toilet and a sink in it, so you're calling it a bathroom, but I bet at some point it used to be a closet because we can't get the walker through the door. Got to kind of tiptoe around the sink sideways. There's really nothing safe to grab on. And so, yeah, we can retrofit and talk about what could be done in this situation. But I think it's an awareness that says my physical environment, I need to have that backup plan, as it were, of what would I do if I had to bring someone in here and if I really want to stay, is this home going to serve me for the long haul. So it doesn't mean we have to give up our dream home, but I think we just need to be more aware of if all the bathrooms are upstairs, how would we get someone up there? How would I get up there if there was a problem? Can we get through the doorways? If if someone came over in a wheelchair, would we be able to maneuver that in the home? So again, we're not suggesting everybody goes out and buys a new house next week to accommodate this, but I think it's a piece of the proactive planning that we don't really think about until we're faced with the family member in the wheelchair that won't fit down the hallway and can't get at the bathroom and now with sleeping in a recliner chair because it's the only place we could put them. We see that very often. And I think some of that is changing not only from a retrofit or fixing your home you're already in, but thinking about when you make those purchases or remodeling decisions, are we having an eye toward accessibility? I want to talk about one more scenario that I think is probably pretty common. It's the scenario where, say, a family member who isn't the normal caregiver can look at the situation and say uh, that the person who is the normal caregiver is probably not for that job. So the example might be there's an aged child who isn't at home but knows that, say, his or her mom is caring for their dad, but he can look at his mom and say, there's no way she's up to this. She should not be doing this too much for her. I can tell that. What tips do you give that person either for how to have that conversation or maybe how they should reach out to a medical professional to help them mediate and figure out a better solution? You hit the piece that I would say is the biggest part of it, is that you feel that that's going on in that situation. Before I would approach it, I would at least have some potential options or solutions that we could talk about. Because what we see is the wife has been taking care of her husband now. We we know it's overwhelming or we know there's a lot of stuff going on. And here comes the granddaughter into town because it's the holidays and she's never been there before. She doesn't really know the entire situation. And she just decides to start saying it's too much and something's got to be different. Okay, but when you come in, especially if you're not around often, you may find the caregiver and the caregivee shut down pretty quick on that conversation because they don't feel you really have any business questioning at all. And to just say, hey, I don't think this is working, is not necessarily productive. I mean, what would we do with that? Do we need to call the physician about getting a home health consult? Do we need to look at what options are out there? I think approaching it from a way that is very much I care about you and the person you're caring about, let's see if there's some other options out there. Because like I said, when, when folks charge in you know, that aren't there very often and start making comments about what should or shouldn't be, I overwhelmingly find that that can shut down conversation 
very quickly because then it's, you don't know what you're talking about. I haven't seen you in the last three years. How dare you say those things? So even though they may have been well-intended by the individual, and I think sometimes that individual has much more of an objective perspective sure. because they haven't seen how it's kind of declined and declined and declined. It's much you know more subtle to the individual doing it every day. But even if you see it and you're that third-party person, is to really be aware that this situation's been going on for a while and you need to approach it respectfully and willing to talk about other options. And I'm not saying that means you have to necessarily be the one to volunteer, but even if you're from out of town and you're going to be there for a week or two, can you volunteer to watch the person for the afternoon and let that individual get out? Sometimes they're so entrenched in this they can't see it that just giving them the opportunity to go to the store by themselves and not worry about the family member or maybe arrange for them to go do something fun with someone can help them to recognize how much they've missed because and how difficult it's been. Because when you're in it day in, day out, and like I said so many times, that situation becomes more and more strenuous gradually and over time, and I may not even notice it till I'm in too deep. Even if I come into that and give someone just a lifeline for an afternoon can help to say, listen, this is why you need to take care of yourself too. This is why it's much more difficult here, and how are we going to work together to find that? And it's challenging because times when we suggest even a medical social worker, one of the interesting things about home health is that many times the patient and their caregiver are very afraid of letting medical people in their home. Not because we're mean or crazy. I mean, we have very nice brochures that talk about how wonderful home health is. But there's an undertone that letting someone into your home like that, they're going to try to put you in a nursing home. They think that you know, you're spying for the doctor, you're spying for that daughter who lives three states away, and I'm not real comfortable with you being in here making recommendations or, or saying those kinds of things because you're going to try to put me in a nursing home. And so as someone who comes in in that third-party role, it's acknowledging that this is a situation that they're in and how do we help them troubleshoot it so that they can keep that individual home and maintain their own health during this time. And it's a compromise. I mean, there sometimes it's, this is what I think you should do, this is what you are doing, so how do we find something in between that makes the situation better but may not be textbook ideal? But I think it's a challenge. I mean, when you mention social work to some of our population, they very much act like they drive the paddy wagon to the nursing home. They don't want them there. So I think it's recognizing that when you're going to access those external services, our intent really is to help keep them safely there. We're not there as some hit squad to write informant reports to the doctor and get you dragged away in the darkness to the nursing home. And I deal with this myself with an aged grandfather who just turned 98 and he's in his home and he wants to stay there. And we have had this conversation. He's adamant he doesn't want to go to a nursing home, but I've told him if the situation is unsafe, then I can't in good conscience have you here. We need to make sure we have the supportive services in there so that you can be safe and that you can stay home, but always with an eye toward how do we do this in a respectful way that makes sense for all involved. So it's a challenge. And as a physical therapist, I can tell you that just because I'm a physical therapist doesn't mean my grandfather listens to me any better than anybody else's family members do. Uh, it's not that I got some kind of secret gift and now we, you know, we just group hug when we talk about this. It's an awkward situation. And at times it's that challenge that says, you know what, we need to get paid caregivers in it because I just can't do this for whatever reason there may be. It's a tough conversation, but I think the ultimate issue is we're keeping an eye on keeping everyone involved safe and healthy and in the best possible environment. And that's not just about the person who had the illness or injury. It's about the people that are trying to take care of them. And it could be one caregiver. I've seen it be, you know, families trying to rotate who's caregiving and 
try to support each other that way. There's a lot of people out there caring for family members, and they need to be recognized for the valuable work they do, but also recognize that themselves. Because if they burn out and they can't be there or they end up in the hospital, who is going to provide that care? The situation could become much worse very quickly if they don't also care for themselves. We've talked over the course of this conversation about the risks and the challenges, and obviously being a caregiver is such a responsibility, so emotionally demanding, so physically demanding. Just even being a close witness to a loved one in need is difficult in and of itself, never mind giving that extra care. Have there been a time that you've, in dealing with family caregivers and seeing the really outstanding ones, that it's made you a better physical therapist in any way? I believe so. I think with the training we receive, we learn all of these skills and techniques to identify problems patients are having functioning, to put together plans of care and teach them certain things. But I think my respect and understanding of caregivers tremendously increased practicing in home health. Because, yes, we interact with caregivers when the patient's in the hospital or when we're working in a nursing home and those kinds of things. But I think we forget that it's a very controlled setting. In the hospital, in the nursing home, in rehab, they're pretty much on medical turf. And the patient's going to do what we're saying they should do most of the time because they want to go home. And caregivers will come and go and get some training and demonstrate some things, but it's very much in a medical environment. In the home, you see everything the way it normally plays out. And you see the situation where you have the the person needing care, you have the caregiver, let's throw in the caregiver's kids came along, so you have grandchildren running around and kind of carrying on because they're so happy, and the patient's dog is there, and the dog is running around under the walker, and the cat is there, and the cat's chewing on the oxygen tubing, and the TV's on, and it's really loud. And you look at that situation and say, okay, now the stuff they need to do to take their medication, to do their exercises, to get up and around, to bathe and dress and all of those things, they have to try to do it in the middle of this. And so I think what's made me a better physical therapist for that is a recognition of it's not all about the skills I possess. How do I help this situation incorporate what they need to incorporate so that they can stay in this situation? I think many times on the medical side, we get very focused on what our contribution is and we teach and we train and you need to do and here's the checklist and pick up your throw rugs and all that. But you get into the home and you realize that This is where the individual really wants to be, and this is where real life can really throw a wrench in your medical compliance. Not because you're not compliant or because you don't want to, but how many of us, when we're put on antibiotic, miss a dose? Not because we need extensive teaching from a physician or a nurse, but because we simply forgot. We had a meeting, we had a thing, we had to go do this, we just forgot about it. So taking our skill set into a very practical situation and realizing that that caregiver can really be an asset in reminding the patient to do what they need to do to help them understand why it's so important. And to make sure that we're building these plans that have meaning to those people is really where I think it's changed my perspective as a physical therapist because that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where you have to really learn to prioritize what needs to be worked on to recognize there is more than that home program going on in an individual's life on a daily basis. And sometimes it's not going to be the priority for other things going on, but how do we help them incorporate those things to maximize their independence and safety for as long as possible? Tremendous perspective and advice. Cindy Kraft, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Move Forward Radio. Remember that you can find other episodes at moveforwardpt.com and on iTunes. If you're listening via iTunes, please take a moment and rate our podcast. To provide feedback or ideas for future shows, email consumer at apta.org. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. 
Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at MoveForwardPT.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit MoveForwardPT.com radio.